We're going to continue uh, uh, this morning with uh, kind of a mini three-lesson series I started two weeks ago, simply entitled, No Wasted Years, No Meaningless Days. For a non-believer, you've got to create meaning for your life. You've got to find something to do <laughs> to make your life meaningful or worthwhile, and that's a good thing to do if you don't believe in God. Try to do the best you can, because this life is all it is uh, in your mindset, and entertain yourself. Uh, find a hobby, uh, have a bucket list, uh, because you've got to invent meaning. If you say that you don't believe in our God and you don't believe in His Word, you've got to find meaning. Make up something. And our world is full of people who are making up something uh, for their life. But for the believer, it's just the opposite. Our life is already laid out for us. Once we come to Jesus Christ, we learn what God intends for us. We learn what life is all about. He deals with our past. He sets us in course, on course for in the present. And we know where our future is. And we know where we are headed. So there are no wasted years in the believer's life. There's, there are no meaningless days. No pointless moments. Every moment has value and purpose. Our challenge is to seize it and seize, uh, see what that is. And in this series, on being the person God meant for you to be. Because after you are baptized, God has great plans for you and for I that last the rest of our lives. And it's to develop a heart that belongs to Him, and as this little saying captures, a beautiful heart will bring things into your life that all the money in the world couldn't get you. God has a beautiful transformation uh, in course for us that our job is to simply uh, seize and recognize we're doing uh, an analysis of, this, analysis of this, if you will, in three lessons. We looked two weeks ago at the transition from darkness to light. How that God calls us out of darkness through His Son. Whether your darkness has been living in a religious community all your life and you come to Jesus, you're still in darkness if you were not devoted uh, to Christ, but you were just in a religious setting. But many come out of a darkness that's full of sin and rebellion. And as C.S. Lewis said, when one comes to Christ, he calls upon the believer to lay down their arms, to quit being a rebel, quit trying to do the opposite of what God wants. Because God intended for us, starting with Adam and Eve, to live a certain way. And He recreates us in His Son to live in a way that He always intended. And this morning we're going to look at simply the addition. We're going to look at this character quality, uh, or these qualities that God wants us to possess that our life has been changed through Jesus. And then uh, next week, we'll look at the refinement. We'll look at the principle of love and how to love people the right way and how that is part of God's intention for us. But this morning, the addition. There are many places in Scripture where we can find here's what God is looking for. And remember, as I like to say from time to time, the hymn says, just as I am. That's how God accepts us, but He doesn't leave us there. Uh, from the moment you're drying off after being baptized, God has a great plan for you that starts immediately and maybe even as soon as driving home from the place that you were baptized. And we're going to look at that plan this morning. Let's look now at 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 1, and then we'll look at some context. Let's go ahead and look at the context and then we'll read. Uh, this is an adaptation of Jay's principle of kind of laying a, a groundwork for what you're going to see. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 11 written by the Apostle Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, very prominent in the Gospel accounts, 
By the Spirit of God, he wrote two letters, 1 Peter and 2. They were general letters to churches that were going through challenging or difficult times. Uh, the likely writing of 2 Peter is between 65 A.D. and 68 A.D. based on the events that we see in the early uh, books of the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts. Uh, Peter is writing to strengthen Christians, as all the writers do, because they are facing false teachers, teachers that would want to redirect them to a whole other course of action and have them consumed with uh, self-satisfaction, believing in false beliefs where their focus is entirely on something different and unimportant, something other than what God wants. So, like in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, but there are there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So there's people trying to take them in different directions. He says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So there's actually going to be people coming into the church that are going to be denying even Jesus who died for them. And that challenge is present in every generation that will come in with smooth ideas, but they are not God's teachings. And what they faced in the first century, we always have to be on guard for today. So, the antidote for that is to grow, so that you're so strong in Christ, whenever some counterfeit message comes, some lying message that does not fit God's word, you recognize it right away, because you're on course with what God wants. So that's Peter's message, and he hits it right at the beginning in chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 again. Simon Peter, the servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Just pause here for a moment. Here he's talking about this righteousness we have from God. So he's talking to believers who have had their lives changed through Jesus Christ. They now take on new life. He talks about how that we've received a faith. And that's a, a body of belief, a body of knowledge about what our life is all about. About how our life has been changed through Jesus. He's forgiven us of our past. He cleanses us in the present. And he calls that simply the faith. We receive this faith. We believe that God is doing these things in our lives. And he says, your faith is as precious as mine, or the fellow apostles' faith. He says, you have the same thing that Paul and, and John have. We all have the same thing. We have this faith that God gave us, that our life matters, and it's been changed. So then he says, verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of our God and Jesus Christ our Lord. So salvation, redemption brings grace and peace. And he wants them to hang on to that. So look what he says next, and we'll go to our first point. He says, His divine power, that's God's, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
What I want to see here at the very beginning that Peter says is that your calling in life, as is mine, is to look like your creator. To answer the call of these false teachers and what they're saying life is all about, Peter says right at the beginning, your call, your business, your focus, your attention should be on looking like the person who made you. But he says that in what we would call very lofty terms. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need, but he says, everything we need for a godly life. Notice here he doesn't say a good life. Many people without Christ say, well, I just want to live a good life. And that's good. You want to be good. You don't want to be known for doing bad things, stealing and hurting small animals, things like that. But God says, I want not only a good life, I want a godly life. Which means he wants a life that looks like his own. He goes on to say, uh, he's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now verse 4. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may what? Participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world through evil desires. First he says we've been called to a godly life, and then to just confirm the seriousness of that business, he says we've been given everything we need to participate in the divine nature, which means God's intention for you and I is very high. He wants us to look like himself. God's not looking for us to take on his power. He doesn't want us to create a world he doesn't want us to do miracles. He doesn't want us to exercise anything like that. He simply wants our character, our inner qualities, to look like his inner qualities. We kind of get this a lot of times. Maybe you grew up with a loving, kind, generous parent. And you recognize, I want to be like my dad, or I want to be like my, my mother. I want to emulate this quality in their life. Or maybe you had a precious friend who was always a good listener, someone you could trust. He said, I want, I want to have that in my life. So we, other, we understand this idea of emulating other people in their good qualities. No one's perfect, though, in, in this life, but our Heavenly Father is. And our Heavenly Father contains all the qualities, as does His Son, that God wants you and I to possess. And He says, we've been given everything through the knowledge of Him who called us. But this is what our calling is. Spend our lives after baptism continually refining our character to look like God's own character. And that's why there are no wasted years or meaningless moments or days that don't matter. Because every day is full of opportunities where we exercise our character in our interaction with other people. He says he's given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. That is simply God saying that you've been given forgiveness. First of all, that's a precious promise. You don't have to live in the backwash of your past. So you can always live looking forward. And looking forward here is looking forward to this new character. You don't have to worry about your past. Or being caught. You're not a fugitive anymore from God. You're not a rebel. You no longer have to run from God and hide from your conscience. 
You now recognize who you've been made to be. And that is a precious life. You know what your future is. You have an eternal home with God in heaven. So you don't have to worry about living it up in this life because the best life is yet to come. So that allows you and I to focus on our character in the years that we have on this life. And our goal is to look like God's character. Again, God doesn't call us to adopt some physical form. We all look very different from each other. God does not call us to some extensive exercise regimen where we have to take on some bodily form of someone else and look perfect on the outside. Samuel told David, God does not look upon the outside. He looks upon the inside. He looks at your heart, your character. And that's where God is doing His work. In your work changing your character and transforming your personality and taking away the rough edges and refining who you were or who you are is the greatest transformation of all. There's nothing more important than working on yourself and who you are. Your job, you probably do a lot of good things as I do. And any hobby you have is probably really nice and valuable and it's nice showing our friends what we've done. Trips you've taken and, and things you've accomplished are always well and good. But your greatest purpose is what's going on on the inside in this transformation. It's your calling. It's to participate in the divine nature and have a godly life. Well, the question is, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a godly life and to participate in the divine nature? Well, I recommend not looking on TV. Uh, do not go to Hollywood to look for this. Uh, there will not be anything in the political world, I think, worth emulating unless you know someone personally that's taking on great qualities. I suggest not looking there. Uh, don't spend all your time looking at people down the street and comparing yourself to others. You see some good things, great. But what we'll see next is God telling us, here's exactly what a godly life looks like. This is participating in the divine nature. So that's where we're going to go next. What we see next is if you pursue seven qualities, you will be on track to being exactly who God wants you to be. Pursue seven qualities that measure your progress to participate in the divine nature. Let's look at them. Verse 5. Peter says, For this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Qualities, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's take a look at them. In verse I says, this very reason make every effort to add to your faith. In verse 1, Peter said, we've received a faith. We've received this knowledge. 
that God has done for us great things, forgiving us, enabling us to be resurrected one day through His Son. We've received this faith that these are true. And that His Son is truly the Son of God and has conquered the grave and taken care of our sin through His sacrifice. And we honor that in the Lord's Supper. But here Peter says you add to that faith. A baptism is just a starting point to connect to what God has done. Believing with all your heart that He's secured these things through His Son, and you determined to repent, to change your life, God says, okay, you are at the beginning point of this new life that He wants for you. He says, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. And then He lists seven things. But He prefaces those seven things by, making, by saying, you make every effort to do these things. <clears throat> um, that means it's not optional. God did not forgive us of our sins to leave us in the same place He found us. If you're ever rescued by the Coast Guard and you're pulled up onto the ship, uh, you're thankful and you say, please take me home to the land where I belong. You don't jump back to the ocean. You don't go back to what you were drowning in. Uh, later on, Peter says, if someone goes back to their old life, he says it's like, a pig returning to their vomit. Actually, a dog. It's like wallowing with pigs. And he says it's like a dog returning to their vomit. You ever see a dog eating its own vomit? It's disgusting. But later on, Peter says, if you go back to that old life, it's like doing that. So it's always moving ahead in our Christian life. It's just make every effort here to do these things. We're not saved by works. Once we're baptized, we start working on our character. We get busy, and here's what it is. The seven things. The first one, he says, add to your faith goodness. Well, what is goodness? That's kind of general. We probably like it defined for us. We kind of know what it is. We know it when we see it. A lot of times we might say to someone, they're a good person. What do we mean by that when we say someone's a good person? Well, we're probably saying they're good in their responses. When we ask them something, they're all not mean and agitated. Oh, yeah. And they want to listen. And they care about things that are important. They hear about someone hurting or someone that got in an accident or someone that's in need. Their response is not like the priest and the Levite to walk by on the other side. <laughs> uh, their response is to see what they can do to help. That's a good person. A good person is someone that you know that if you needed a ride, you could probably call them. There's people that we would call. There's people we wouldn't even think to call. But people that are good tend to be selfless. They tend to be genuinely caring. Uh, they're concerned about what they take into their mind. They're selective about their entertainment. Uh, they watch their language. Certain things that are not funny to them, though the world laughs at them. There's times they'll turn off their TV or they'll decide they don't want to go any further in an internet search because goodness permeates their life. Again, Peter said here, we've escaped, verse 4, the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We've got out of the sinning business. We've decided as believers we're not going to traffic in sin anymore. So we start the exact opposite life. And that's a life of goodness. We want good things life. We don't like gossip. 
We don't want to hear the latest scuttlebutt about what someone's done that's bad. We don't relish in someone harming someone else. Goodness permeates our life. And that's the first thing Peter says that's an aspect of God's own character. That we participate in the divine nature when we appreciate and live out what is good rather than what is evil. So we're very selective about choices, about what things are important to us. And we only want to allow what's good to live in our lives. If something's bad and our conscience is uh, flashing like a red light, this is not good for you, this is not good for you, don't go this direction, we listen to that. When we encounter God's Word, where God says, you need to get this out, (laughs) this greed that has you all caught in the money, you need to work on that, we work on it, all because we're committed to goodness and we don't want anything dominating our lives that's not good. So that's the first character quality of someone who is participating in the divine nature or trying to live a godly life versus just a life that they see someone else living. Number two, uh, knowledge. He says, add your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Let's try to figure out what he's meaning here. I doubt that he means philosophical knowledge. Uh, That's the first way to go south (laughs) in what you really want to know. He's not saying here go to Harvard, take courses in philosophy. He's not saying, hey, this is something you can get in high school if you just work real hard, take an AP class, something like that. It's not just acquiring head knowledge of how to do things. Even though it is important to learn how to do things, I want my doctor my need to have gone to medical school. So it's not that we avoid learning things. We want people to excel in knowledge. I want my pilot to know how to fly the airplane, things like that. And that's all good knowledge, but it's not really the knowledge he's talking about. It's got to be what kind of knowledge? Knowledge of the Word of God. What, what is our creator, our designer, the one who knows us best? What does he want for our lives? So if someone's working on their knowledge, be spending time with the Word. Uh, they're not going to be on a starvation diet where the Bible is rarely part of their life and they barely see it, look at it, think about it. We don't starve ourselves physically like that and we wouldn't want to do it spiritually. What's beautiful about life today, there's so many ways to get the Word of God. There's obviously sitting down and reading it. There's so many Bible versions that make the reading of God's Word much easier, make it, makes it clearer. There's no excuse not to be able to understand it. We may not always know exactly how to apply it, but to be able to understand what was just said, many different Bible versions. There's things online that help you understand God's Word. There's things on YouTube. There's a lot of excellent sources. Myself or Jay or Nathaniel could always point to those where if you're just struggling to take in God's Word, you can do that. You can listen to the Bible online. If you're good at listening, but you have Listen, if you have a hard time listening to it, you can read it. Have a paraphrased version next to you to help you understand the difficult parts. There's ways to take in God's Word, but you want to be taking it in. Have a time of devotion in your day where you can just spend time with God's Word. A lot of times people have all the stuff on their Netflix that they're going to watch, all the things are all lined up, all the latest shows. But God's Word is never part of that. I guarantee you there's nothing on Netflix 
that is worth watching in place of spending time with God's Word. And a lot of times Netflix shows you this is not worth watching, but if you want to watch it anyway, <laughs> here's what you're going to see. Um, don't fall into that trap. Set a time for devotion to God's Word to read it. Take it in every day. It'll be there when you need it. When the enemy comes into your life, you're trying to figure out what to do. If you've been constantly taking in God's Word, you'll remember. But if it's not there, the enemy will take you all over the place because you don't really think about it. What should I do? What does he call me to do? So he says, add to your goodness knowledge. And then he says next, add to knowledge self-control. Knowledge self-control. What is self-control? This is one I think we more easily understand, um, but if you could say it another way, self-control is simply the ability to say no. If you have an addictive personality, you talk to people in AA programs, they know what they need to say no to. So addicted to some chemical or something, uh, they know what places to stay out of. Used to be with an elder that he had quit smoking. He'd been free of smoking for 20, 30 years. But he knew when he traveled not to stay in the lower level of a hotel because that's where the smoke settled down to. He didn't want that smell triggering him to want to bring that back into his life. With someone addicted to alcohol, they know not to go to certain parties. They know not to go to old watering holes just to hang out with people because they know the smells, they know the sights, they know the attractiveness and how hard it will be to say no to something they need to say no to. Someone trying to maintain purity in their life will know certain people they need length that draw them to impure things. Self-control means you know how to use your computer responsibly. Also, self-control means you know how to de-escalate. Maybe anger is the challenge. You don't throw gasoline on a conversation. You know how to say, maybe, let's stop. Let's talk about this another time when we're in a better place. You know to do that with a person you're in an argument with, whether it be in a relationship or just someone that made you mad when you're shopping. You know how to bring things down rather than ratchet up and get the last word and then walk off angry. That's self-control. You know when it's better to say nothing than to say something you'll regret for the rest of your life. That's self-control. You know how to pursue things that are holy and good. You know, when you've shut down the internet because things are going south, you know, let me embrace God's word. Let me take on spiritual songs. Let me listen to hymns that we sing that will fill my mind with good things that will bless me rather than things that will take me to dark places. That's self-control. Not only saying no, but knowing to go to the exact opposite. A person's had a problem with stealing. They know, that, hey, I need to get a job and I need to be helping people. I need to be giving so you have the blessedness of giving rather than receiving. And Satan has a hard time with a shoplifter when they learn to get their excitement from giving to others. And the blessing of seeing eyes light up when they're given a gift from someone that earned that and they're now going to give it to someone else. Satan has a hard time getting your life when you go the opposite of what he wants. And you don't have time for his temptations. And you don't have an interest. Number four, perseverance. This is, uh, and to self-control, 
perseverance. What is perseverance? We don't use that word a lot in English. It uh, literally means the ability to suffer long. Perseverance means being able to put up with a lot, and not giving up easily. And that, first of all, applies to the Christian life. Uh, we're in this for the long haul. This is not a 30-day trial <laughs> where we return Christianity if it's not working well for us. We're in this to the day God calls us home. So we don't quit on Jesus who did not walk down from the cross and quit on us. God pursued us all our lives. How could we ever walk away from Him? How could we ever crucify Him we said we would get out of. So perseverance means staying faithful. Sticking with difficult people at times is perseverance. We all wish everyone acted like ourselves. <laughs> we always wish everyone did what we did. I'm obviously sarcastic. No one wants to be around someone just like themselves. Opposites attract for marriages and things like that. We don't want to meet someone just like ourselves. Um, but perseverance means sometimes when you find someone that's not like yourself, they're going to have some differences. They're going to have different opinions. They're going to have uh, personality quirks. They're going to have different approaches to things, and they're going to feel differently about things. And they're going to make you mad at times. It's like we're going to make them mad. But perseverance means we don't give up on them. We know how to figure out what's important to them. Peter said later in another place, he said, to husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Try to understand where the other person's coming from. Because they will not be coming from the same place you are. And that's part of perseverance. It's the ability to stay with difficult circumstances when God hasn't answered a prayer that you've been praying for for years. And those live with difficult health concerns where the doctors have not found a medication that works and there's a pain that has not gone away and every morning and afternoon and night are filled with the same malady. Uh, they know what perseverance means. You just have to live with it. You're not going to end your life prematurely. You're not going to uh, just abandon God and quit praying. You just stay the course. You're going to persevere. Because God has not called us to an easy life. He's called us to a faithful life. Especially when we don't know why bad things happen. And hurtful things happen that we can't explain. That's perseverance. You don't give up. Number five, godliness. Here, again, we've been called to godly life. We've been called to participate in the divine nature. Well, what is godliness? And I thought about, well, what is this point? I thought, well, what has God done? <clears throat> He's created, but I can't create anything. But the highlight in Scripture is that God sacrificed. He sacrificed His own Son for us who struggled to be committed to Him. But He still loved us that much. He sacrificed. I thought, well, that's something I can do. But it's not easy. None of these are easy. There's none of these where we easily say, I got this. I'm doing it so well already, I got this. Every single one of these will go against the desire to do something different. But the idea of sacrificing, whether it be our time, our devotion, our priorities for the Lord, will always be a challenge. But that is something we can do. Because that's godliness. He sacrifices. 
Later on, we'll see how He loves that we can do. Our God shares. Our God cares. Cast all your care upon Him. 1 Peter 5, 7. For He cares for you. We can care for other people. These are things we can do. So when we are called to godliness or a godly life, participating in the divine nature, these are the things. God does not call upon you and I to create a world. He's already done that. He's not calling upon us to control the weather. He does that. He calls upon us to care, to love, to sacrifice for others. To love our enemies as He loved His enemies and still sent His Son to die. We can do those things. But He gives us all of our lives to work on this. He simply says, make every effort to do these things. He doesn't say, get it down by Tuesday. He says, make every effort. That means every day is spent, how can I keep working on this? Our life, many times, is two steps forward and one step back. Is I communicating with another teacher at school, and we have a we have a problematic student. We'll just call him a problematic student. I'll tell the teacher this this student. Uh, he's a two steps forward, one step back type of student. That means he's going the right direction, but he's going to have some bad days where he's called up to the office because he really messed up with what he's really been working on. Because he got angry. I got a really good kid in one of my classes. But he loves to wear some clothes that promote marijuana in very subtle symbols. If you ever see the word cookies on a kid's clothes, that's promotion of marijuana products. But they're very subtle, this company. And this kid was told by our assistant principal to turn the jacket inside out. You cannot have cookies. It was just a seat. Kids all know what that means. And he got really angry. He would not do it. He got really angry and there was a big showdown between him and the principal. And I'd have a parent meeting on Friday. And the kid got the message. Took the consequence. Came back to class. One of my favorite students. Got back to the business, being what he should be as a team. But he really messed up one day, and he just would not do what he was told to do. He was rebellious, but that's not the whole story of his life. And the whole story of our life is not just one moment. We're always working on godliness. It's a lifelong pursuit. Number six, mutual affection. This is within a Christian context. Mutual affection doesn't mean we go around kissing people all the time. That's an, being a hugger, that's not the idea here. Uh, but hugging someone may be part of it. in a Christian context means you genuinely care for people. When you, they come in the door, you don't look the other way. You don't shun people. Like, oh. You look for people to be affectionate. Affection can come just from being a good listener and looking someone in the eye and holding back your stories to hear their story. She knows when the hug is really needed, when someone's eyes are just about to let loose with tears. And you seize the moment this is the right time to hug someone. A warm handshake. A genuine fist bump. 
someone to have that you're sitting next to that is going through a hard time. Uh, people rarely remember the words we say. But they remember when we were there, when we cared, we just took their hand and held it. Things like that mean the world to someone. When the Apostle Peter here is saying mutual affection, it's that ability to genuinely care and love for others, despite them saying at times unlovely things. Or they're venting a lot of pain, and when people vent pain, it's a throwing up of emotions. The body has to get rid of a lot of stuff. So it's knowing when to listen to someone a lot of stuff and not trying to judge everything they just said. Be that person who just holds a hand and listens and lets that person talk. That's a mutual affection. Then finally he says, and to mutual affection, love. The word love is commonly used in our language and it goes all different directions and most of them wrong. But love fundamentally is the ability to do the right thing for someone else in your actions. We'll see that next week love has little to do with feelings for someone. Now there is, there are feelings when someone's in love with someone. There's a Greek word for that. There's a Greek word for sexual love in the right context. But the love here that we're called to, that we're going to emphasize in the next lesson is simply how to love another person the right way by what you're doing. Especially when you don't feel like loving someone. When someone really angered you. When someone is unlovable because they're a very edgy person. And they're kind of hard to be around. And they say things that are inappropriate. How do you still love people like that? We'll look at that more next week. But you might be saying, you might not, how do I practice all these things, John? How do I practice them? Let me give you some quick suggestions before our final thoughts. Practice them, first of all, when you're driving. Driving gives you so many opportunities to practice love, self-control, goodness, knowledge. It means you don't try to cut people off. You don't try sending choice words through the windshield. You wave people in. Oh, you take the spot. You don't try to force yourself in the parking spot at college. Go ahead. When people do things on the road that are crazy, you just say, well, they must be really in a hurry. Maybe they're going to the hospital because someone's dying. Instead of, why? That's self. You work on that. That's a good place to work on these. Shopping. You're with other people that are trying to get things done, and they got their cart, and you had their cart. You go ahead. There's arenas in life where all these things can be practiced with your neighbors whose stuff comes over the line into your property. When their music's too loud, or when they took your parking spot, or things like that. Practice these things by talking to them the right way. When friendships are strained, not giving the silent treatment, not writing someone off, but instead finding ways to re-engage with someone that you've had a rift with. With family, that sometimes are the most difficult to love. It's so much easier to deal with coworkers because you've got to be on your best. You've got to be on your best. A lot of people say, when I get home, I don't want to be on my best at all. I'm tired of being nice. 
and family gets the worst of us. Family gets all our bad qualities because we've been trying to be nice to a bunch of people all day. And we're not going to be nice anymore. It's six o'clock. And uh, but work with family because the best reflection of who we are as a Christian is how we are with our family. We're always on our best here. But how we are we at home behind closed doors. Our choices. Finally, just a couple more minutes. Possessing these qualities, these seven, confirms your place in the church. Let me read Peter's last words. Verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 9 now. Look at the shot across the bow. Because someone says, in case someone thinks these are optional. He says, but if any of you do not have them, you are nearsighted and blind, and you've forgotten that you have been cleansed from your past sins. Just pause here. Here, Peter, you're serious about these seven. These are not just seven suggestions for a better life. This is not a motivational speech that Peter is giving. He says, This is your business with God. Take on these qualities. He says in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. He said that twice. Make every effort to do this. Again, we're not saved by works, but we better be working as believers. We're saved by the cross, but our goal is to work for God. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, those are those seven things. If you do these things, you will never stumble and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. These seven things represent taking your Christian life seriously. Where you're always working on these character qualities. He says if you do these things, you'll never stumble. He does, he does say, he's not saying you'll never sin, but you won't stumble in the sense of go back, going back to the world. If someone's so engaged in loving other people, controlling their temper, uh, growing in knowledge of God, being a good person, Satan's going to keep finding locked doors in your life. He can't get in. Because you left all that stuff. Well, he's going to try to sneak in, and you're going to recognize him at times, you're going to beat him down with a club, but he's going to go. Because he finds no room in your life. Because if you've consumed yourself with generosity love and being a good listener to other people, caring about their matters, Satan will not be able to find easily any dull time where you're just sitting around doing nothing. He will not find the time or the lack of focus that he needs to take you down the dark alley of sin when your life is consumed with good. But he will try. Go on to other people who are laying around. You'll come back later to see if you're still going strong. But you'll keep finding locked doors because these character qualities are consuming your life. You're so busy helping other people, <laughs> you'll never give up that for anything he offers, his trinkets, because you have golden things in your life that mean the world to you, that bring you a deep sense of spiritual satisfaction. He says it confirms our calling. It's how we know we're on the right track taking on these seven things. But again, we have a lifetime to work on them. You will never get to perfection with them, but every day you can work on them. Refine them, make them better and better in your life. And every day your life becomes better when you do. And then he says, and we'll end, you will receive a rich, rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. You're everything that God has planned for you and everything He's wanted you to be when He sent His Son to die for you. He will see in your life. And Peter says, you'll be richly welcomed to the eternal kingdom. And God invested His Son in you. And to be this kind of person, may we ever give ourselves to these qualities. There's no other pursuit that's worth it. Don't live for retirement. Don't live for a trip or a vacation. Don't live for some hobby. I mean, those things are all good. I have mine. I like vacations. But don't live for those things. Don't live for those plastic things when the gold of your life is in these character qualities. To work on them, to work on them. When you fall, get back up. And your God is there with you to support you all along the way. Confess when you failed, but get back up like the Apostle Peter, who got back up after betraying the Lord three times. They even knew him. He was allowed to get back up and get started and becomes the most prominent of all the apostles in the earliest days of Christianity. And he could write these words. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song to call us to obedience, to faithfulness. We're in this for the long haul. We just had some surgery. We're going to be in the recovery room soon. And then we're going to be back out. It's always outpatient surgery. We're always back out into life after we have this surgery. But to get back into practice these things. And for some, it's going to be in the parking lot when you leave. It's going to be on Brotherhood Way when the traffic hits. Practice these qualities. Practice at home. Practice at work. Practice with your neighbors. If you need to give yourself fully because your life's been going all over the place because you're not devoted to the Lord, you can acknowledge that. We'll help you. We'll see what God says about your life and what step you need to make. But you never have to stay stuck. You never have to be always taking three steps backwards. You can redirect your life, and that's what Jesus specializes in doing, redirecting lives to go the path that they were made to go.